folks. Welcome to another episode of Footnotes, bringing you news and views to help you become a more informed neighbor, advocate, and believer. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and this episode is an interview with author Michael Ware on his latest book, The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation, and the Renovation of Public Life. I've known Michael Ware for several years now, and he's got a very interesting story. Of course, he is a faithful Christian. He also worked in the Obama White House. He worked in the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, helping link um, political efforts to faith-based community efforts. And he brings that experience to this book. And the way he goes, the direction he goes in the spirit of our politics was refreshing to me, to be quite honest. And I said this to him in our interview, I'm kind of skeptical when Christians write about faith and politics, particularly white Christians, because it tends to be this both sidesism, you know, Democrats and Republicans are wrong. We can't take a stance, blah, blah, blah. I don't find that helpful. I don't find that practical. I also don't find it a very serious engagement with the complexities of faith and politics. But Michael Ware avoids that in this book. And so we have a wide-ranging discussion. He and I have a similar background about coming to faith and evangelicalism in our teenage years and uh, the idea about where you carry your faith and what is legit in terms of a vocation or careers for Christians. And we also talk about some practicalities. Listen in, especially toward the end, when he talks talks about spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation practices that we can all do, as well as how we deal with the neighbor, the family member, the coworker, the friend who is so far down the rabbit hole of politics being their identity, it's almost too hard to talk to them. He has some really great advice for us. So listen in and enjoy my conversation with Michael Ware about his book, The Spirit of Our Politics, here on Footnotes. What are you drinking? That's a Celsius, live fit. Good, good, good. <laughs> are you a, are you a Celsius drinker, or you probably have tea? So I haven't done that yet. You know, I'm hooked on I'm hooked on Olipops right now. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're really uh, there's some about them, and I don't like any of the other competitors. Like there, <laughs> there's Poppy. There are like a couple others, but I'm like Olipop just has that recipe down. So. I don't think I've tried it. I don't. I'm. I'm uh, I got to try that now. I'm writing it down. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. We 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 sort of bond over caffeine or whatever the drink is of choice. So anyway, welcome to Footnotes, Michael Ware. Thanks for joining so us. So good to be here. So good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. We sort of go way back. I feel like our paths crossed. In the time before the times, like before COVID, maybe even before or at least around the 2016 election. I'm not sure. Do you remember? I don't have a great memory for these things. Do you know, it's one of like the blessings of like social media for all of its all of its problems, all of its issues. You find wonderful, wonderful people. So, yeah, I'm sure that we connected, you know, like 2015, 2016. From there, yeah, for I sure. think it was. I think it was. And you always stood out as, and you talk about this a bit in your book, which will be the focus of our interview. You always stood out to me as someone who's who was able, as a Christian, to go into any sphere in any sector where that was 
a little bit out of the norm for me, just being in seminary and church circles, where if you were like a serious Christian, quote unquote, you had to be in explicitly Christian circles, but you never really viewed it that way. Is that right? I mean, I I think that's right. I mean, part of it is I came to faith a bit later. I was uh, about 15. Um, and so, you know, I, I was, I didn't have, uh, uh, great thoughts at 15. I was an adolescent, but I, but I, I was sort of, you know, I, 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 before I came to faith, I had a, a sort of, uh, view of the world. And so when I, when I came to faith, obviously like everything changed, but it, it meant that I wasn't sort of soaking in some of the assumptions that you, that you have. Um, and it was actually really, when, when I came to faith, I thought, I need to go to seminary, become a pastor. You know, you just uh -huh, want to do like, uh -huh. a Christian thing that you could think of. And thankfully, there. my pastor was like, you know, Michael, look around. There are Christians who aren't pastors. And so, like, even <laughs> like early in my faith was like this, this sense that, oh, yeah, there's this culture and there are these sort of uh, 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 cliques. But but that's that's not the whole thing, even even though. When you're inside, they try to claim that it's the whole. That's thing. what I'm saying. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm thankful that that you did, and we'll get into that a little bit. So you mentioned that you came to faith. First of all, uh, congratulations! You published your next book, "The Spirit of Our Politics: Spiritual Formation and the Renovation of Public Life." Congratulations! I know that is an incredible labor. This is book two, three for you. Yeah, it, it's my my second solo second solo book. I, I co-authored Compassion and Conviction with with Justin Giveney and Chris Butler, but this is this is my second solo book. Yeah, very good, and it's brand new, fresh, hot off the presses. Uh, the link will be in the show notes for this episode. Um, but going back a little bit, you mentioned that you became a Christian at the age of fifteen. Was that in any particular tradition? I'm just always curious, like what branch of Christianity people sort of first learned the faith. Yeah, so it was interesting. You know, I um, I grew up, and I write about this a bit in my in my first book. I grew up, um, loved R and B music since I was <laughs> three years old, um, and that love of R and B music brought me into contact with gospel music because, like, you know, Sunday morning you'd be waiting for the music videos to come on. BAT uh, at one o'clock, but prior to that, uh, it was it was church. It was gospel hour, and so <laughs> um, and so I had these interesting um, experiences. Or like you know, the last track on an R and B album would be you know yeah, the gospel, yeah. <laughs> you know the gospel stuff. You know, shout out to Lord God at the end. We were talking about for the for the first fifteen tracks, but track sixteen <laughs> came on, and and and, and, and the the mood shifts at the end of the album. It. Uh, and, and so um, uh, uh, I had these, um, I, I, I had the, the ground was tilled through the black church. I got invested in politics because of the civil rights movement. Um, and then Lauren Hill's unplugged album uh, came out in the, in the 18 months, 24 months before I gave my life to Jesus. So that was, that was, Whoa. that was critical. The other stream sort of feeding in was my sister, my older sister, um, she uh, started attending a church. And we're, we're from Buffalo, New York. Mm. Uh, this church was 
presented as non-denominational because it was in Buffalo, New York. Who wants to go to a Southern Baptist church when you could like see <laughs> Niagara Falls? But it was like it was it was the pastors were all like New Orleans Baptist theological trained and sort Got of it. so it was it was Southern Baptist sort of background. But it was it was it was uh, it was basically like Canadian non-denominational wow. kind of kind wow. of church. And, and I was handed a tract of Romans, and it changed my life. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's the, it works. I mean, we have a, a slightly similar story in that I didn't grow up Christian. I became Christian as a teenager in high school and really through kind of a standard evangelical formula for sharing the gospel. Mine was through youth group and these little sermonettes. And then I prayed the sinner's prayer and all of that stuff. So, yeah. um, but I'm excited to hear about the influence of R&B and gospel music, especially I think it's back in the nineties that you're talking about. If you're talking about Lauren Hills unplugged. So that's my era, the, the golden era of R&B. Um, yeah. So that is helpful to, you know, sort of lay the groundworks for your faith, and we'll talk more about that. But what about this involvement in politics? Was this something where you like majored in poli sci undergrad, or you participated in a, a you know voter registration drive and you took off? How did that come about? Yeah, so I think it came from as far as sort of I could track an influence. I was interested in civics from a from a pretty young age, and I think it was my grandfather, my, my mm -hmm. grandfather, who was basically a father figure in my life served in World War II, came back, was very involved in the community. He wasn't he wasn't very political, uh, but he was he, he he served his community in a number of capacities. Uh and so I think that that rubbed off uh on me. And so I was, you know, had an incredible social life as a as a teenager watching C-SPAN on weekends <laughs> and uh, you know, so it was it was pretty early and again like very much before I came to consider myself to be or would have would have you know strongly identified as a, as a Christian and so it was it was an interest in, in civics that I thought I had to let go mm. uh, and then, and then some influences helped me help me see that oh no maybe maybe God has something to do with this like 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 yeah, maybe he really. wants this to be to be turned and used to serve him. Uh, and so, yeah. Imagine that. And I just think that's a, such an important point. We won't dwell on this, but just for folks listening, like, especially if you've got um, teenagers in your life or new Christians, we, we, we somehow always get the message that to be truly serious about our faith means to go into some sort of direct, explicit faith-based work, right? Whether that's a pastor or uh, going to seminary or, you know, doing, you know, church nonprofit stuff, whatever that might be. And and I just really appreciate the life stories and the witness of folks like you who understood that God's in all of this. And, and we don't go necessarily to where God is, but God is always with us. And we take yes. God with us, God's spirit with us wherever we go. Um, yes. So, so cultivate those interests, whatever they might be, the arts, civics, whatever. Um, yeah. I love the title of your book, The Spirit of Our Politics. My forthcoming book is called The Spirit of Justice. So Spirit is Spirit I didn't know in that. 2024. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All the Pentecostals will appreciate. Um, <laughs> but I really love the subtitle of books because I think that really gets to the core of what the author wants to communicate. So the subtitle of your book is Spiritual Formation and the Renovation 
of public life. Talk to us about that word choice and what you're trying to convey in this book. Yeah. So the the book is based on the idea that the kind of people we are has much to do with the kind of politics and public life that we have. Come on, say that again. That, 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 that spiritual formation is central to to civic renewal. Like like our democracy can't get around the kind of people we are as much as we may try and, and try to pr- procedure our way around the kind of people we are. The, the, the title and the subtitle uh, are also uh, allusions to the work of Dallas Willard. And, yeah. and Willard shot through this book. So he had a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And then he had a book, Renovation of the Heart. And so I'm not like hiding the hiding the ball here. <laughs> you I know? love it's, it. It's, uh, uh, the, the, uh, Willard is really shot through. And his I, this book is one way to look at it is uh, uh, an application of Willard's ideas uh, to public life and politics. And just a quick word, Willard uh, was a philosopher, taught at University of Southern California at, at time for a time he was chair of the philosophy department at usc he was also a christian author and teacher who wrote a number of books um and taught basically from the 80s into the second decade of the 2000s Mm, i i love that and i was going to ask you about dallas willard and particularly his influence on your faith and also how his thinking shaped this book yeah i mean right so it sounds like we had similar experiences at, uh, in terms of coming to faith. And I, I think in some streams of American Christianity, uh, raising your hand in that auditorium or in that pew is like the pinnacle. Like that is the that is the best it gets. And we spend a lot of time, depending on denomination and you spend a lot of time trying to get that feeling again. Mm. And so, you, you know, mm. how, how how many uh, have, have prayed the sinner's prayer more than once? <laughs> how many have raised your hand? You're just trying to, and and it's because it's built up, like, like that is it. And once, once that happens, you're in. And everything else is just sort of like non-essential. Mm. Like, yeah, read scripture, you know, try and serve some people. But the essential thing, is that you had that moment of mental ascent. Mm. And, and I'm still an evangelical. I, I, I believe God uses uh, all of those things for his glory in my life. And I, I don't want to speak for you, but I think your life would be so different without that experience. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, but what I heard rumors of in church was... Um, that actually the Christian faith is about interactive relationship with Jesus that doesn't start after you die. But, but it, 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 uh, as Willard would say, eternity is in session now. My and, and Willard, um, I read his book, The Divine Conspiracy. I was working at the White House. Someone sent it to uh, our office. I thought, I don't have time for this. I've never heard this guy. This is a dense 300-page uh, book written by an academic uh, six months later about, I pick up the book, read it. And it was like a second spiritual awakening wow. in my life. Not that he was saying new things that you couldn't find in scripture. It was, a- it was actually the way he opened up scripture and the church fathers and um, uh, to, to uh, Willard 
argues and and suggests that the that Jesus's gospel is about the present availability of the kingdom mm. now, and that is invigorating to me. And I look at scripture and, and I and I and I see that I see that all over its pages that that yes, give your life to Jesus. Yes, you must be born again, but born again for what? But for for when you die sometime off in the future, uh, uh, no eternal life starts now. And that, that was that was captivating, captivating. Wow. I love that. And you threw it in there uh, and we should talk more about it, that you were in the White House when somebody sent this to you. So, you know, I think it's important to to outline for folks um why you are uniquely positioned to write a book about faith and politics. So talk a little bit more about your involvement uh, formally in politics. Yeah, sure. I um, So I met um, Barack Obama, then Senator Obama, in the lobby of a hotel that I was supposed to be at a couple days later, but I had the wrong date. <laughs> and uh, we ran into one another. And I told him I wanted to work for him. I'd followed his career for some time. He obviously gave the speech in 2004 at the Democratic Convention that a lot of people paid attention to, but I, I paid particular attention. He gave a speech in 2006 about his view of faith and politics. Mm. And I'd only been a Christian for maybe two, three years at this point. And he, he said in that speech that left-wing secularists were wrong to ask people of faith to leave their faith at the door when they enter politics. He said, try, try to imagine that taking out the influence of faith and Christianity in particular from American history. Well, where would Dorothy Day go? Where would King go? Where would Lincoln's second inaugural go? William Jennings Bryan. Wow. And as I was coming to faith, I mean, one thing we should talk about, Jamar, is so many of the conversations that we're having right now are... 2.0 or 3.0, whenever you want to start the timeline, but are very similar to the conversations of the Bush years, mm. right? Like we're, we're, uh, Bush years, it was theocracy. It was evangelicals are taking over our politics. They've taken over the Republican Party. Remember, it was it was Bush in the 2000s that was sort of the first time evangelicals got their guy into office. And so there was all this politicized conversation around evangelicalism. At the same time, I, as a uh, as a blue-collar uh, labor, you know, that's my family background, Catholic, Italian, labor, FDR, sort of Democrats, comes to a Southern Baptist evangelical church wow. and gives his life to Jesus. Uh, and so I, I'm thinking... Uh, Wow, it seems like this is this is not just going to be a personal decision. If I, if I give my life to Jesus, it's about everything. Mm. And so that 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 speech, I know this is a little circuitous, but um, Barack Obama giving that speech, which wasn't perfect, I have disagreements with it. Um, but the fact that he was willing to stand up uh, in the wake of you know John Kerry's nomination, who was not the most uh, astute. Uh, religious engagement uh, uh, nominee the Democratic Party has ever had, um, and that he was willing to to say that to call people of faith to bring their values uh, into politics was was meaningful to me. And so yeah. uh, I met him in that hotel. Ten months later, I was in Iowa uh, working on his campaign as an intern. I worked on his first inaugural, and uh, and then I, I worked in the White House for three and a half years in the office of faith based neighborhood partnerships. I helped the president navigate 
religious issues, relationships with religious leaders. Uh, and then and then I was asked to run faith outreach for, for his re-election campaign. And so I, I left after the second inaugural, but it was it was an incredible, incredible season. And, and I got to see not just politics at that level, but also to see how religion was operating uh, as it intersected with with politics. And, and um, and you know, that certainly informs my work today in, in this book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I just wanted folks to know, because you're not just some guy who, like, watches a lot of news. You were literally in the White House working on faith based and community uh, partnerships. So, you know, a lot about this stuff from the inside. Now, I'll just be honest with you. Um, yeah. You know, one of my first concerns with books about politics written by Christians is this both sidesism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We effectively live in a two party system. It's going to be a Republican or a Democrat in the White House um, and most other offices, right? And what I often found with Christians was. Well, you know, Republicans have their problems, Democrats have their problems, and the principled stance is not to adhere to either party. Now, right. whether that actually meant they registered as independents or they, in effect, voted for Democrat, I don't know. But that was like the public stance, the ethics yes. approach to politics. How did you navigate that in this book? Yeah, so I, I think... Um, we have overinvested and, and have a misperception of the role of political parties. One of the reasons why people say that is because they think a political party is meant to be a brand and identity. And so, of course, if if uh, if you think when you're participating in a political party that that means that you're ceding your conscience to that party, uh then, then of course Christians can't do that. But that's not what political parties are or what they're meant to be. Now, it's what political parties suggest themselves to be. It's very easy. It, it takes care of a lot of problems for political parties if instead of uh, serving the role uh, that they have to serve, uh, which is mediating difference, not just with other parties, but parties exist to mediate difference within the party. Mm. And you see this. You see this now with, uh, 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 debate over uh, Israel-Gaza. I saw it um, near the end of the second term of Obama, uh, President Obama. The, the chief foreign policy priority for President Obama in his second term was something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mm. Bernie Sanders was running uh, in the 2016 nomination process against uh, 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 asking for a different approach to trade than uh, than NAFTA and TPP. Well, what did the Democratic Party platform look like in 2016? Referring to the president, the sitting president's chief foreign policy priority, the, you, you could read the platform now, basically says we can agree to disagree. And it's mm. because it had to mediate this very intense conflict within the party. So it couldn't say, this is the position of the party, get on board. No, there was a there was a robust enough constituency saying, look, we're Democrats. We think Democrats are better than Republicans, but we're not following the president on this issue. Mm. He's wrong on this issue. And so, so like, uh, so I think we could say two things at once. Neither party is perfect. 
I think that if you identify, if, if you are a member of a political party, I think you have a special responsibility to hold that party accountable. Right. Um, and to, and to, that you have special influence as a member of that par- party to contest that party where you think it's wrong. That's the point of a political party. At the same time, we don't need to get into these. Um, it is as much political idolatry to keep on harping about how politically homeless we are as it is to talk about what a loyal Democrat or Republican you are. The, 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 the crisis is not that Christians are politically homeless. The crisis is that we ever thought that we could find our home in politics at all. Um, I highlighted that line. That's good. Yeah. And and this this sort of um, we need to be really careful about this sort of aloof posturing that uses the fact that both parties are wrong and politics is not ultimate. And all these important things I talk about a great deal in the book, but we we can't use those things to say, so I'm not going to, you know, these institutions are not as good as I am. And so basically I'm the party of me. There and is. you have a lot. You have a lot of that posturing now, which is, which is, you know, d- Democrats and Republicans. They're all so disappointing. Neither of them has has a, you know, gets it right. So sign up for my newsletter, and you'll get, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you could you could become a member of my party. And, and guess what? That that person has some things wrong too. So I, you know, be careful about identifying even with these, you know, these these. Uh, above the fray kinds of kinds of folks thinking that just because they're above the fray, they have everything right. No, they have a, they have a perspective too. And they have histories too. That's good. That's good. Because that stance does say, not only am I apart from this system in some way, I'm above it because I see the flaws that other people can't see. And I detach myself. That's really helpful. Now you talk about, um, this idea of political sectarianism. And yes. I think that 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 relates to the previous questions about both sidesism and because you talk, talked about brands and identities. Yes. So can yes. you talk about political sectarianism? Yeah, I'll, I'll, tr- I'll try to I'll try to be brief. So political sectarianism is a framework for defining thinking about the particular kind of polarization we have today. It was put out by uh, uh, more than a dozen social scientists who specialize in this from different fields, but folks, uh, Liliana Mason, Ian Gar out at Stanford, um, uh, Brendan Meehan, I mean, some of the top folks um, looking at polarization. What I like about the framework, I like a number of things about the framework. I think the historical debates are so counterproductive in the sense of the, the measurements that are like, we're more polarized today than ever. or in, oh. it, like those are important conversations to have, but when they sideline us or distract us, so we're now having debates about whether we're more or less polarized as, as people who have to live now, I want to wrap my hands around what is the nature of the polarization we have to face with now. I don't have to face the polarization of 300 years ago or whatever, you, you know, like what we have to live in the world now. And so, Political sectarianism is, and this is from the study, a toxic cocktail of three primary ingredients, aversion and aversion towards uh, primarily those in the other party or those who disagree with, with you politically, the tendency to other, so the tendency to other those who disagree with you politically, 
And then third is a, a misplaced moralization, the elevation of political disagreement to that of sin or iniquity, to 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 start sort of contrast of, of, of good and evil. And this toxic cocktail um, not only has pretty uh, destructive uh, effects on our politics and governance, and, and this brief study goes into it and social science that has developed over the last three years, I think only, only strengthens this, this idea. It also deeply impacts our communities and our churches. And, you know, you know so, so when we talk about families, uh, churches sort of being uh, strained because of politics, one lens to look at it is to see how political sectarianism and the culture, the logic of our politics it is driving these sort of, um, these antisocial behaviors that we see. That's really helpful. So political sectarianism, this uh, cocktail, you say, of uh, otherization, of uh, moralization, and of aversion. That's, I think, incredibly a helpful framework as as we think about politics. Um, but aren't we facing something different this time or in this season? Uh with literally what I would characterize as the existential threat to democracy itself, the idea of voting and the peaceful transfer of power and punctuated, of course, by uh, an attempted insurrection on January 6th, 2021. And now, as we record this in 2024, the same president who many uh, cast responsibility for that insurrection on running again right in the midst of 91 charges and all of these things isn't that a little bit different than what we've seen before and for christians who are looking at this as not just a choice between democrat and republican but maybe democracy and autocracy or you know an imperfect democratic party and maybe even white christian nationalism is it does that change the calculus at all well, I think it means that there are some other things going going on. To be sure, I think that um, I, I I think that it's um I, I think part of it is recognizing the ways in which the development of polarization, certainly in the twenty first century, but but even in the last in the last quarter plus of the twentieth century helped create the conditions where someone like Donald Trump could be politically successful. Mm-hmm. I also think part of, um, I mean, Jamar, you know me, I, I, I think there have been uh, 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 professional expressions I've had and roles that I've served in um, where I've had the opportunity to be very clear uh, and, and to uh, directly, whether it's, you know, helping to, uh, elect a president, you know, pretty clear when you're running uh, outreach for a presidential campaign that you think that there's a there's a clear choice to be to be made and other other positions. Yeah. So I, I think there's a there's a place for that. I do think um, part of the logic of political sectarianism uh, means that if if you're speaking directly to the electoral choice in front of uh, in front of folks that everything sort of gets rationalized away 
in, in a way that isn't right, that isn't isn't good, that shouldn't happen. But it's it it you get into the game of well, well, they started it. Mm. You know, we're only doing this. You know, it, you you hear this from from folks, right? That Donald Trump wouldn't exist if um, the country would have just elected Mitt Romney. Uh, you, you know, like like uh, um, you know Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump is contesting elections because that's what Democrats did to Bush in 2000 and 2004. You know, so you get right. all these and, and people just can't um, people are just soaking in these partisan uh, uh, time sensitive, short term sort of arguments. So part of what I try to do in the book is say, let let's let's reset instead of starting with a vision of a presidential election or starting with a vision of immediate political threats let's let's start with the place of politics in god's world mm. and the vision the godly vision we bring to all of life mm. and then once that work is done then let's then let's see where politics and the circumstances of the day might fall under that vision. As opposed to, I think what I see a lot of now is sort of building theological priorities uh, in a in a response to either good or bad assessments of what the most pressing threats are. And mm. there's a role for that. I think I think I think a, a a responsive theology certainly has a role. But for some people, it seems it actually causes them to lose perspective as opposed to as opposed to gain it. And so so that's what I'd say. but but I I mean, so in in the book, for instance, you know, I, I talk about I, I I open one of the chapters on January sixth. But my framework for um looking at January sixth is not to go through the legal provisions and was it an insurrection, was it not? Those are obviously very pertinent conversations uh, uh, right now. But I refer to uh, in the Senate gallery, there's a Latin inscription uh, on the walls of the Senate gallery, Anuit Coeptus. And I, I'll speak Latin, so like correct me on, on the pronunciation after. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the Latin phrase means, may God favor our undertakings. That, uh, that oh, whatever the law says, Christians have to have the ability to look at what happened that day and not say, well, you know, the other side or, you know, they were just frustrated Americans. Where where in the Bible is frustration, justification for literally defecating in uh in in the Capitol building My for God. using God's name in vain yeah. for obviously the violence that we saw on that day. And if we can't say that that God did not favor what took place in the Senate gallery, then we don't just have a political problem. We have an idolatry problem. We have a discipleship problem. We aren't willing to look at reality as it is. And and other perspectives and other entry points into this political moment, I think, are can be fruitful and, and helpful. Um, but 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 this book, I'm trying to I'm trying to um, I, I, I'm trying to zoom out so then we yeah. could zoom in from a healthier yeah. from a healthier place. I really appreciate it about that because from the opening chapter, you sort of 
take us in a different direction than one might expect on a book about faith and politics. Because to me, what you're really emphasizing is personal spiritual formation and what kind of people we are as human beings, as people who profess to follow Jesus. And that is what we bring to our politics. So will you talk a little bit about that approach, about how literally spiritual formation and, and who we are in terms of our characters and morals is a, is a different, you know, maybe fresher way to approach the subject. So uh, T.S. Eliot has this line. uh, He says like the human undertaking has been to try to create a system so perfect that people no longer have to be good. Uh. I think that there are very few descriptions that are that pithy, that are that direct, that uh, help us understand our politics today which is like if we could just get the right people in office, if we could just have the right procedures to even um, to, and, and the right the right sort of structures, then even like I'll behave right, you know, but like in a system like this, you know, it just doesn't loving your enemies, not not in a politics like this forgiveness, not in a, not in a politics like this. Um, and so. Uh, I believe in structural change. I believe in public policy. I've spent 17 years uh, advancing public policy. The conviction I've come to, though, uh, is that good public policy oriented in the right direction, the kind of structural change we seek, uh, is not going to come in a reliable, even proximately reliable way without the kind of people who are capable of intending that kind of change. So like, here's like an easy, here's like an easy example, right? So um, you ask people in surveys, you know, um, you know, what, what do you not like about our politics and like negative advertising will be like, uh, you know, if only these candidates could focus on my issues and, and kitchen table issues and stop sniping at one another. Mm. Okay. That's, that sounds great. Um, you do testing of political advertisements and advertisements that are about public policy issues and proactive solutions to address uh, different concerns that Americans have. And uh, they perform, generally speaking, so much more poorly than sniping, character assassination, uh, ads with with Hans Zimmer music. Uh, that, that seems like you know, like a like a horror movie kind of kind of uh, kind of battle, and so you start to say, "Oh, we we think that we want these things, but we aren't the kind of people who can actually provide to our politics the kinds of incentives that would support the mm. kinds of things that we uh, provide mental assent to." Mm. And then, of course, like Jamar, as someone who is. Uh, as someone who swims in multiple streams of theology and history, right? Like it took me so long to come to realize, gosh, that sounds familiar to the theology uh, that so many people either consciously or unconsciously embrace, which is, uh, yeah, we, we we should be like less angry. You know, we, we, we should love our neighbors. We, we should have self-control. Um, uh, but we aren't the kind of people who could do those things, <laughs> but our, our, but our faith is still right because we provided mental assent to these two yeah. or three lines of doctrine. 
This is so what, what yeah. Jamar, what does it mean? What does it mean if you ask that? Uh, and maybe even like, and, and this is it, it, go before 2015 and and ask ask someone, uh, the, the average person. And of course, there was there were differences then. There were communities that uh, didn't have uh, the voice in the national narrative. But, but I'm talking about the national narrative here. Like you ask uh, a reporter, what does it mean to have a Christian politics? Mm. Or, or you say, what is a values voter? And, and it's, I, I hold the right position on two or three issues. What, what else do you need to know? It doesn't matter how I advance those positions. It doesn't matter how destructive I am as I go about this work. What mm. it means to have a Christian politics is the same thing for many. It, what it means to be a Christian in general, which is just, I'm willing to say yes when I'm expected to say yes. And whatever I do after that, it, it the, there may be gestures towards, like, yes, it would be ideal if I did this after I said yes, but it's not essential. Wow. This is, uh, you stepping on toes in a good way right here. <laughs> um, because what you're emphasizing is not just mental or intellectual assent to certain propositions, but a certain ethics and way of being in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's all of life. That's holistic. Yes. And and, and yes. then, of course, it affects our politics, but that's not the single area. So this actually makes me think of um, the Black church tradition. And yeah. since you you know talked about the influence of R&B and gospel and everything, I'm wondering... Can you trace any sort of influence from the Black church tradition's engagement with faith and politics to to how you're thinking now? Oh, it's all, it's all over. I mean, <laughs> if if I could ask, if I can mandate, uh, you know, ten or so pages for every American to read that would help them understand the the psychology and spirituality of our politics today would be Thurman's. Uh, chapter on hate in Jesus and the disinherited. Wow. And, and that that chapter is so penetrating, uh, Jamar, and it's so surprising. And, and he has such a care. He has a care that transcends the easy pat answers that we use to um to perform care. Mm. So he tells this story in this chapter about um, uh, two, he's walking down the street and there are two uh, little black girls on a stoop and and they see a, a white woman cross the street. And they, I forget, uh, you know, all, there, there are more details, but he hears one of these little black girls say that, that she hoped that that, uh, that that woman falls and cracks her head open. And Thurman Thurman reflects, you know, what what horrors must these little girls have gone through and experience, and what must make up uh, their their imaginary to um, for, for for that to come to mind. Yeah. And so there, the, and 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 then of course there's there's the idea that. Uh, they should not want that, you know, so it's not, it's not, oh, I totally like understand, but, but he, he recognizes the, the damage that things like fear 
and, and anger and hatred due to others, but also due to our own souls. Right. And that that is, um, I, I, I write, I write in the book, you know, there, there's this, um, there's this fear, I think, that has a basis. Like the, the, these kinds of conversations have been misused. Mm. But but what, what what I would argue is that Christians actually have a have a higher estimation of the damage of injustice and racism than mere materialists, mm. because we have an accounting for the spiritual harm that racism uh, and injustice does. Yes, we know about bodies, <laughs> and we know about uh, the 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 significant um, harm that can be done to people in their physicality, in, materially. Yeah. But we also know that that's not all that there is. Mm. Um, and so that is, you could find that other places. Augustine talks a great deal about, and I quote Augustine in a section on anger. He, he talks very similarly to Thurman, actually, about what anger does. Um, but but that's that's significant. And then, uh, you know, Jamar, just like personally, um, it, it was I was in the White House in an incredible time just to be like a spectator. Mm. Um, on inauguration day, I'm pushing Reverend Lowry in his wheelchair up to the parade stand for the wow. inaugural. I'm watching. I'm standing next to Martin Luther King III watching the first family walk down Pennsylvania Avenue um, about like halfway through the president's first term. Maybe it was a little bit later. We had him all the living lions of the civil rights movement. So Fred Shuttlesworth was still alive. C.T. Vivian was still alive. Of course, I'm like hiding in a, you know, like you just want to like, like, you know, like I'm just like honored to be in the in the premises like i don't want to intervene but just to see all that history um that living history that lives with us today yeah no it's it's um i i hope folks see it through the book just the last thing i'd say and i won't say much about it now but the book ends really um talking about ruby bridges yes uh and I think that there's been a bit of a loss of aspects of the story of, uh, of Ruby, but but Ruby is really like six year old Ruby is really a model I lift up in the book as what it might look like if we took Jesus seriously in our public life, mm. and I, and I hope folks will, will, will read about that and and be inspired by it and take it seriously. I've taught I've taught about Ruby Bridges to college students seminars and christian students and and the the quickness to rationalize what ruby did to say mm. that she was she didn't really know what she was doing you know if she was in her right mind she wouldn't have it, it's something we need to be really careful and if we think about it it'll suggest to us something about what we think about putting our full faith and trust in, in Jesus and whether yeah. that's naive or not, but, yeah. but yeah, I could yeah. go on and on, but yeah, I appreciate the question. I, I, I did love that section on Ruby Bridges because you really connect this truly childlike faith. I mean, she's only like six yes. years old 
to yeah. what she was doing and, and and a cognizance and a consciousness on her part that she wasn't just going along with what her parents or her pastor said, but there was something in her that was real, which by the way, we always emphasize she's still alive. <laughs> like yes. not that long ago. No, she um, has she has a new book coming out like now. <laughs> like, you know, like not only I, a living I, but I, active. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so just a few more questions. Um spiritual formation. So we're we're talking about the importance of the kind of people we are and our character, but you also emphasize the how and how we become those people. So you can tell us just just a few of the spiritual practices as they apply to our our formation and how we look at politics. Yeah. So I I, I walk through a number and it's not a limited list. Um, uh, uh, People I would invite you in your relationship with Jesus to think about what has been identified uh, to you about your own heart and to think creatively about what disciplines the Lord might be calling you into. But in the book, I talk about, I mean, I think the most timely, uh, I think we are in an essential moment and period in uh, our culture uh, for silence and solitude. I just think for the Christian uh, to to be taking up the disciplines of silence and solitude will do so much to remind you of who you are in Christ Jesus, that you are more than just an amalgamation of the various outside influences and messages and things vying for your affection, but uh, you get in silence and solitude and, and you remember that you have a soul. Mm. Uh, uh, and so, so um, uh, you know, I write about prayer. I write about um, I write about celebration. I write about worship. And then I talk about what twenty first century uh, disciplines for our public life. And uh, there's a section about consuming the news and and some advice for how people consume the news. I talk about um, breaking groupthink, mm. uh, not just as a. I mean, not it's not not just. Not, not to be a devil's advocate, not not to be the the sort of person who's always sort of like, uh, uh, you know, the annoying one at the party, but but actually by by intentionally seeking out the best sincere arguments against the position that you and the people that you tend to hang with and and have political conversations with, a two things could happen. One you might actually like change your mind or uh, uh, your approach to issues might take into effect. How do you mitigate some of the concerns that other people have, the sincere concerns? So you might have the right general position on an issue. Uh, 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 I mean, just to take like an easier, uh, you know, uh, I I think it's a a generally accepted Christian idea that uh, it would be good to have fewer people uh, who are poor. Um, and so you could say, well, I'm against poverty. Those people, uh, are, uh, are against what I'm, I'm, I'm for. And so like, I'm on the right side and I'm good, but those folks who are against the policy proposals that you're advancing to reduce the number of people in poverty, they, they may have a couple of lines that are like, Oh, I didn't think about that unintended consequence mm-hmm. of this particular policy instrument to advance even the good intention that I had. Mm. And so, and so, yeah, so those are some of the things that uh, unpack in the book. And, and I should say the book 
is written uh, to reflect Dallas Willard's uh, model for spiritual formation, which he argues is how Jesus taught, um, and and uh, and it's vim, vision, intention, means. And so the book is very much written uh, in that way: vision, intention. And then what we're talking about now are the are the means. What are the practices that we could take up to 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 participate with the Lord in the formation of our our characters? That is so good and it, it, it's so practical and so approachable, right? Like this is not these spiritual practices that you're talking about don't require a bunch of money or relocating yes. or anything like that. Yes. It is it is stuff that every Christian can and should do in, in various ways. Um, yeah. I also want to deal with, you know, just where people are, right? So yeah. th- this is in their families. This is in their churches. These are people who, even if we're sort of accepting your message, that it's the kind of people we are that should inform our politics first, rather than deriving our identity from politics. There are people who we know, we're close to, or we even love, who are so far down that rabbit hole, right? So how does my spiritual formation have any impact on folks who seem to be almost brainwashed, whether left or right, um, and deriving their identity from their politics? Yeah. So it's very difficult. And I I have circumstances like this, and and there are never any easy answers. And sometimes there just aren't there are answers that will achieve the outcome that you want. And so part of it is just letting go of, of outcomes, understanding that you just can't control folks. You could, you could love people. You could try to serve them. You could try to be of aid with them, but like beating people into submission, a like never works. And, uh, uh, and, and then, and then B, I mean, similar to our last point, like you'll be doing damage to your own your mm-hmm. own self if you take on that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my publisher hates when I, uh, but uh, uh, the, the most important paradigm shifting idea in the book, I think, isn't mine. Um, in Life Together, Bonhoeffer's book, he has this section where he says. Um, he says, well, Christians never meet one-on-one. Mm. He says, um, uh, Christians are always uh, mediated by the Lord himself. Mm. And so when we're talking now, when I'm talking with someone that I think has a, 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 a Christian, or even I think this I think this can, I don't want to speak for Bonhoeffer. I think this can apply or at least be helpful even in relations with non-Christians. And what I advance in the book is that this can be how Christians approach public life and politics, that that we are never seeking to act directly on those we're interacting with, but we're looking to Jesus and asking Jesus, what are you doing with this person? Mm. Um where are you trying to shepherd this person? Um, and that's that would be my my encouragement to to folks. And and I know it doesn't sound practical. I think it has really practical, like like just go into that conversation with your with the uncle with the friend and say, 
it is not, I don't have an agenda for this person. I am, I am, I am looking to Jesus and uh, considering how I might serve this person uh, without having any need to manage or control or coerce a situation. And that will relieve us of some of the responsibility and burden we have in, I think, a right way. I also think the person on the other end begins to begins to feel that you have a greater concern for them mm. than you do for their politics. Um, and 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 that can be a powerful that can be a powerful shift. So, so many we just have a political environment right now that is constructed to reify and reaffirm political opinions as central to the kind as central to who a person is. And so if you go straight for the political opinions, and of course in a political, you know, elections, like, you know. Uh, if you're running a political campaign, you you better be talking about your opponent's political opinion. You know, like let's. Uh, I'm not Pollyanna about this, but I I also think like this idea that you know if you're attending Thanksgiving dinner, your uncle has a has a bad opinion. Don't let him get through eating his mashed potatoes without schooling. My question is always like, is your uncle a sitting United States senator? Like, do you? <laughs> Like, do you even know if your uncle bothers to, like, vote every four years, not to mention, you know, it's so, like we need to right side. Like, what are the stakes here? And typically for the average person, the stakes are both enormous uh, and and not uh, what we make them out to be, which is right. the soul of that person. So let's care for the soul of that person. Wow. I like that a lot as, as as honestly a very practical answer and a very authentic one. Um, and it gets back to, I think, the point of this book is it's about who we are and do we care for the soul and humanity of the person who disagrees with us more than we care about their politics um, yeah, yeah, yeah. or how does that work out? So it is extremely practical. And I just really appreciate the deep thinking the prayer, the spiritual formation that went into shaping you so that you could craft this book. Uh, congratulations once again on publishing The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation and the Renovation of Public Life. Hey, thank you so much and great to be with you. Your work is uh, so powerful and so needed uh, and, and really just an honor to have this conversation with you. Likewise, likewise. Thanks, brother.